You think this podcast is written for someone starting on day one as a new nonprofit executive director, but I want you to think more broadly than that. I would love for this podcast to find its way into the hands or ears of every board chair, the members of every executive director search committee, the group that worked their asses off to make the biggest decisions that boards make. So much is riding on this hire. I see it every day. I see search committees write descriptions that take months that might as well just say, Messiah wanted. We're seeing transitions of all sorts in the nonprofit sector, retiring boomers, founders stepping down, and then in some cases, leaders for whom the COVID crisis and social unrest has led to a choice to throw in the towel, perhaps, or a choice by the board that a leadership change is the answer. So in walks the new ED, the Messiah, the leader the board believes in, the rock star who's going to dig out, scale up, innovate, make all the changes the board has been anxious to see. The expectations are always high. And I know nonprofits real, leaders really well. I've been one. They are type A high performers and overachievers. They may be crippled with imposter syndrome, but they can hide it really well, masked with that certain, I got this, a kind of confidence to tell his board members that they have come with the skills, the experience, and all the right answers. So that's the setup. The board wants what I call Messiah proof of concept. And the new leader is anxious to please to get to work, and to hit the ground running. Everyone is impatient for big success in short order. Through the years, I have stood as a private consultant and coach for executive directors in just these situations. Of course, I point them to my book because I'm not really a dope, but I also point them to another one, The First 90 Days. In 2009, this book was named one of the top 100 business books of all time by Amazon. Nothing rocks an organization like a leadership transition. And so we thought, let's get the guy who wrote the book. Like literally, the guy who wrote the book. Today we talk with Michael Watkins. What's the magic of 90 days? What are the typical pitfalls? The things you really have to nail? And what do you do when you arrive just in time for, I don't know, how about a global pandemic? This conversation is no substitute for his book, The First 90 Days. And you will order it before this podcast is over. But I think all of us are about to experience a masterclass in getting it right from the start. Greetings and welcome to my podcast, Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary. In my work, I offer counsel and advice to CEOs and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a keynote speaker, an author of a best-selling book with a very novel name, Joan Gary's Guide to Nonprofit Leadership, and I'm a columnist for the Chronicle of Philanthropy. I'm also the co-founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, an online membership site where we help small nonprofits thrive. But most of all, I consider myself a compassionate truth teller and a champion for board and staff leaders. In my podcast, I dig deep into the issues faced by nonprofit leaders. You can always count on getting my personal point of view, and you can count on experts who will share their expertise in fields ranging from fundraising to leadership transitions, to team building, to board management, to organizational strategy, to self-care. The list goes on. So welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Let's get started. Michael Watkins is the co-founder of Genesis Advisors, a global leadership development consultancy based in Boston, Massachusetts. He specializes in transition acceleration for leaders, teams, and organizations, where he coaches C-level executives of global organizations. 
He's also the professor of leadership and organizational change at the IMD Business School and was recently ranked among the top 50 management thinkers globally by Thinkers 50. Watkins is the author of the book, The First 90 Days, with over a million copies sold in English and translations into 24 language. languages. The First 90 Days is the classic reference for leadership, leaders in transition, and a standard resource for leading change. He is the author of 11 books and countless articles on leadership and negotiation. I could list them, but let me just say, this guy is the expert and the go-to guy. Originally from Thunder Bay, Canada, Michael Watkins received his undergraduate degree in electrical engineering, wondering how that's come in handy, from the University of Waterloo, did his graduate work in law and business at the University of Western Ontario, and a PhD in decision sciences at Harvard. Michael, thank you very much for joining us, and my oh my, is this a timely subject. Delighted to be with you, John. So I know your work begins with the start of a CEO tenure. But it's hard to imagine that you haven't learned more than a little about the kind of CEO that can hit the ground running and is able to sort of really grab onto the advice that your book lays out so clearly. So I think about this a lot in my own coaching practice, that it's as much about attributes as it is about experience and expertise and skills, and that sometimes search committees miss this. So if I'm the chair of a search committee, and I want to hire somebody who's going to swallow your book whole and crush their first 90 days. Who am I looking for? What are the attributes I should be um, looking for in that candidate? So, John, I was really struck by your description up front about the boards that are looking for the Messiah, right? Mm-hmm. Because I think that's where the trouble begins, honestly, right? Yep. Which is that you know, a, a leader who's a messiah is also a leader who often is a narcissist, who's often very good at projecting themselves, you know, looking pretty wonderful. But in my experience, that's not the leaders that really do the very best job in, in many institutions. And you work primarily in nonprofits. I work primarily in for-profits, but I suspect it's quite similar. And so you're going to hear biases from me here, right? I'm not a favor. I'm not, you know, in favor of narcissistic messiahs uh, as leaders, in part because I don't think they really have the best interests of the organization at heart. Correct. Right? Yeah, totally. But But that being said, right, so what do you look for? I look for leaders who come in with a learning orientation and a connecting and understanding orientation. I look for leaders who are confident enough to admit they don't know everything about what needs to happen or the organization, um, they're confident enough to be asking good questions all the time. And of course, that can go, go on for only so long, Joan, right? Where you have to then start to actually do things, right? But coming in with that learning orientation, that connecting, that helped me understand, you know, really being very skilled at listening. And boards can typically tell because, you know, that leader should be doing that with them too, right? right? So if you, if you don't have, you know, you're in a, you do, obviously you're involved in searches as am I. And, you know, if you don't have candidates who are there really trying to understand in some depth, right, what the challenges are, what's the organization all about, what does the culture, you know, look like, those are very powerful signals that you're probably not talking to the person you want to lead the organization. Right. I mean, how many times, how many times have board search committees been, the word I want to use is suckered in 
by and you know think about nonprofits for a moment right this is this is the person who is going to be the voice and face of a cause and they come in and they say some they're, they're wonderful on their feet and they're able to actually create goosebumps around that search committee table and that becomes the thing right but those and then they're just they're just sold and they, they aren't digging deeper. And I think one of the things that's really interesting about what you said, Michael, is that there are times when people prep for interviews and they think they're supposed to know all the answers. And they come up with a list of like two or three questions to ask at the end. I, you know, Joan, I'm prepping for this interview. What questions should I ask at the end? I'm like, you, dude, you have to actually incorporate questions throughout that interview. It shouldn't be an interview, right? Because to your point, Mike, which I think is so important, they actually have to start to build a relationship from the moment they walk into that interview door with those people, right? Absolutely. Criti- critically important that you build a good relationship with the board you know, early on and see the board, you know, hopefully as a real support and asset in what you're trying to do and convey that, right? I mean, I see other CEOs, and I'm sure you've seen this too, where once they're in, it's kind of they're trying to shove the board away. <laughs> like, please just leave me alone. Let me do what I need to do, right? Huge mistake in my in my experience. I, I, I don't think anyone's ever taken me up on it, but I have, rec- I have advised search committees of nonprofits that they should create the equivalent of a room to have the new person work right? Have them go from person to person and talk to people and connect with them and ask about them and see, right? And right. And, and probably without the cocktails, but you know, I I think it can be, it it can be very instructive. So um, good. I love that learning, asking good questions, connecting. Um, So let's talk about your book is about the first 90 days. Let's talk about the 90 days before the first 90 days. Uh, I work with a couple of clients, I bet you do too, who hire me in the three months before they actually start. Uh, You know, most folks in these positions really want to, they have to hit the ground running and they want to get started sooner. So I guess maybe, maybe talk a little bit about how you would recommend based on your first 90 days, how should they deal with uh, the 90 days before that or the eight weeks before that? Yeah, no, it's a great question, right? And that if you have some time, and I guess I would say not too much time, and we can talk a little bit about that because that creates its own issues, but if you've got some time before you're formally in the role, this is like a huge gift, right? You've been given a gift, okay? And the way not to, you know, respond is to say, I'm going to just take some time off, enjoy myself, you know, learn to play the guitar. I'm kidding, right? I, I do think that there's, it is important to give yourself some time to recharge a bit, right? because you're often coming out of something very challenging and going into something very challenging. Right. That said, there is so much you can do to accelerate your transition by doing the right things before you're formally in the role. And the right things are very much related to what we talked about with the learning orientation and the connecting piece, right? This is a golden opportunity to begin to learn a lot about the organization before you have the full flood of everything you know, the, the, the schedules, meetings that fill your calendar and so on, right? It's a chance to really learn about the organization. Interestingly, I find that, and it's, I don't know why this is the case, Joan, but it's a little strange, but people will say more to you as a leader before you're formally in the role than they will after you're in the role. 
it's weird, but I've consistently seen this because you're not quite the boss yet. You're not quite there yet. It's a more informal set of conversations often. And so if you can be organized, and this is one point I make very powerfully in the first 90 days, organize to learn, right? Plan to learn. Be thoughtful about how you're going to engage in that learning process. Be thoughtful about the stakeholder environment, right? You know, I, I say I work for for-profits, but actually some of my biggest clients are nonprofit hospital systems, right? Oh, right. And so, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, which have their own their own dynamic, right? They're a particular class of, of, uh, of nonprofit. Um, but, you know, they often have quite large and politically complex boards. Wow, right? You've got to really understand those boards. You've got to reach out to everybody on that board because the one person that you fail to reach out to is going to turn out to be the influential one that you've managed to annoy. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, and and it'll come back to bite you. Right. And so a lot of investment, if you've got that time and really connecting with key stakeholders, that's the board, that's the community you're going into. If it's more community focused organization, it's, you know, really about understanding some of the, the existing leadership, because again, you'll get a chance to get a view of them you may not get once you're formally in the chair. So that's one big piece of it. And we, by the way, we have a name for this process. We call it pre-boarding, right? It's not, pre-boarding. you're not onboarding, you're pre-boarding, right? So what, that's one big piece of it. The other <clears throat> big piece is really how do you plan your arrival, right? How do you make sure that there's a good structure in place and a good plan in place for what you're going to do once you are formally in the role? Yep. And this gets at things like, um, what do people already think they know about you? Because people are going to call the people who know the people who think they know you, right? And they're going to have a viewpoint on what to expect. And you've got to think about, am I going to kind of live into that or not? But at a minimum, you need to understand it to some degree. You want to be thinking about what your messaging is going to be as you go in. And it's not messaging about what you're going to do. It's messaging about who you are and what you represent as a leader, right? You can begin to communicate a lot about your orientation as a leader in those first critical, you know, couple of weeks. Now, we were talking about the pre-boarding piece, and, but that's really the time to plan that, yep. to plan out the messaging, to think about the communications, right? I'm going to think about, you know, the symbolic dimensions of the transition here. You know, when you show up, what's going to happen on morning one? What's going to happen on morning two? What's interesting about this, Michael, is that the pre-boarding, the things you do in the pre-boarding, and I I don't know why all of your um, um, names all make me wistful for airplane flight. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And why am I always in group four? That's what I want to know. Anyway. Fundamental philosophical question. It's an existential question for me. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) the um, everything that you do, all that outreach you do in the pre-boarding phase is messaging, right? Is that um, is I usually have my pre-boarders make a list of people of influence in the organization and the community and just reach out. And just say, you know, then I don't have to sell themselves. I said, what, what, what do you think I need to know? What would be the most helpful thing that I could hear from you as I get ready? And I have already, it's, it's creating buzz. It's creating buzz. I also, um, one of the things, and I don't know what tactics you um, advise clients in this 
<clears throat> this pre-boarding learning thing, but did something recently with a client that worked out really nicely, which was asking each member of the leadership team to just write two pages, like no more, right? We don't want to give them too much to do in a pre-boarding and I don't want to read too much. And we asked three simple questions. I don't actually remember exactly what they were, but, you know, what are, what do you see as the biggest challenges in your area? Um, and also ask them, can you send me one or two things to read that would um, enable me to sort of get a feel for the context of your work? And it was a total home run. First of all, she was much more set up and the buzz in the organization was like off the charts great. And she learned about them, right? Are they good writers, right? So like the whole process was, a, was learning all the way around. So I think that there's really nice things you can do without overtaxing yourself so that if you did want to learn how to play the guitar in those eight weeks, you'd probably have time. Yeah, good. No, it's a great idea, right? And so I, I usually recommend a, a variation on that, right? I don't, it's funny, I hadn't thought about getting them to write something, which is an interesting thing, and you'd learn slightly different things. But I always recommend that leaders in transition go into that process with a set of questions that they're asking basically everybody. Yep. And, and the ones you, you know, and often it's organized around a kind of a SWAT framework, right? What do you see as the strengths of the organization? What do you see as the weaknesses? What are our biggest challenges? What are the biggest opportunities? If you were me, what would you be focusing on? Right. I, and, but I think also to your point, you're sort of learning at a couple of levels here. And I sometimes talk about two level learning, right? You're, you're learning about the substance, but you're also learning about the people yeah. and, and the dynamics among those people. Right. And that begins to get, get you some insight into the political dynamics of the organization and every organization, nonprofit, for profit, has its politics and you need to understand and learn how to navigate. Uh, yeah, because that. somewhere in that pre-boarding process, you might find out that someone is reporting to you who wanted the job and didn't get it, for example. Happens a lot. Oh, right? yeah, and, sure and does. We, we, can talk, we can talk about how you deal with that one. But the other thing too in the pre-boarding, and I think we've kind of touched on it a little bit, Joan, is culture. Culture, 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 right? How do you begin to understand, you know, the unique culture of the organization that you're, you're joining and every organization has its own unique culture. Right. This comes as a surprise to some people, right? Like organization of culture, not, not to experienced leaders, obviously. Right. But I think among the questions you can very usefully ask early on in that pre-boarding phase is tell me a bit about the culture of the mm. organization. Tell me a little bit about the heroes of the organization. Oh, the heroes. Me, I love little, that. Yeah, tell me a little bit about the, the, the biggest battles we fought and won or lost, right? Um, tell me about people that have been around a long time that really understand the history of where we came from, right? Because those are also great people to be to be talking with. I um I also think that culture um manifests itself in how decisions get made. And I um I don't know if you actually ask that question, but boy, I learn a lot about organizations when I'm working with clients and they, and we end up talking about how a decision gets made. And um, I don't know if that's a useful question to ask and what kind of... Oh, it's hugely useful. Yes. <clears throat> it's hugely useful, right? So I'm, I'm a big proponent and clearly you are too of... Oh, right. You have a PhD in decision science. What am I talking about? 
Well, that's not that's not the relevant thing, actually. I, you know, you, you mentioned you mentioned the engineering, the decision sciences. I always describe myself as a recovering engineer, right? So, mm-hmm. um, but it does bring some structure, obviously, what I'm doing. But but what you're pointing out here, John, that's really crucial is there are techniques, methods you can use to really speed up the learning process. And you just gave them, you know, gave the example of one, which is pick a critical decision and dig into how did that decision get made. Oh, I love right? that hugely beneficial, right? Another one is follow a process from end to end in the organization and see what happens, right? Another, I describe it as taking a vertical slice and it obviously depends on how big the organization is, but, you know, just start to move down the levels and see how far down you have to go before people get fuzzy about what the mission and vision and strategy of the organization are, right? Right. And so it's a lot of really simple stuff like that, but it can massively accelerate your ability to gain, I, I call it actionable insight. Like yeah, you're not yeah, there yeah. just to learn for the sake of learning. You're there to, to your point, you know, influence because uh, the way you learn also influences, but you're also trying to distill out the actionable insight, right? And the actionable insight then lets you begin to shift from the learning to the deciding and acting, right? And, um, you know, obviously when you make that shift is a pretty important question uh, um, for sure. <clears throat> so let's, y- y- in your book, you talk about something called the break-even point. And I, I, I made a note here um, about what do people know about you? And so I want to come back to that too, just when we, when we get into a little bit further on, what do people know about you and how do you affirm what they believe they hired and how do you shift their perception of um, what you, what they, you may understand to be their perception of your vulnerabilities? Like for, like, for example, I had never asked anyone for money before in my life before I became a nonprofit executive director. And probably not even my mother because I knew she would say no. And um, <clears throat> so one of the first things I did was go out and ask somebody for money, right, is close a gift. So boom, like right away, I have dispelled some mythology that, oh, really? You, this board is hired someone who's never asked for money before it, uh, to run an organization that's in the financial, uh, in, a, in a huge financial hole. That's good. Anyway, so let, we'll come back to that. But let's talk about this. So I wanted to shorten my break-even point, I think. Yep. Right? Mm-hmm. So talk about this break-even point. Um, will you explain it to the listeners and what does that look like? Sure. And- <clears throat> so it's, it's basically kind of an analogy to financial break-even, right? How does it, long does it take before an investment actually begins to pay off? And the basic idea is, is that early on, typically, you're not generating value for the organization, you're consuming value, you're taking people's time. And as you get up the learning curve and begin to take action and make decisions and, you know, form strategies and do all the things that you need to do as a leader, you start adding value. And the question is, at what point is, is, is the, you hit the zero point, right? You, you, the way I sometimes describe it is how long does it take before you haven't done damage to your new organization, <laughs> right? That's, that's a joke. Um, and, and the thing about that's valuable about that is, you can do some research to see what happens when you use some of these approaches, right? And so I did a, a study a couple of years ago with Egon Zender, um, big executive search firm, looking at the impact of this methodology. And we found that, you know, if you applied it, in this case, it was being done by coaches, coaching people uh, in transition, you could have the time it takes to get to the break-even point, right? And so instead of six months, it took three. Right. And think about what three months is worth to you, right. <laughs> especially in an environment that's, 
you know, as, um, you know, as volatile as it is today, um, and the need to, to make action. And, 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 you know, one thing we might talk about later, if you're interested is what happens if you apply this across the entire organization, right? Huh. If everybody in transition is taking, you know, is, is getting some form of support or has a framework within which to operate. But I want to get back to, you know, I think the, the point that you were making earlier about sort of the balance between learning and doing the, the need to make decisions the perceptions that people have of you. And I think it, it's, again, you know, you're, you're sort of um, building on this idea that you're going to come in with people having a set of perceptions, yep. having some form of reputation. Um, I, I recently wrote a co-authored a Harvard Business Review article on how insider CEOs succeed, right? So these are people who have been promoted internally, not onboarding, right? I know we're focusing mostly on onboarding. And among the biggest challenges they faced was precisely what you noted, which is reshaping the perceptions that people have, right? Yes. For example, you've been the CFO yep. and now you're the CEO. Yep. What's what are people going to worry about? That you're going to stay focused on the financials, that the, the attitudes toward risk that you had when you were CFO are going to continue to, to be used. And to precisely your point, you need to bias yourself in the direction of not doing that, right? right? And, and and that's what you described, right? And, and sort of working against that, that set of perceptions because people need to see you differently in this new role than they did previously. Yeah. The um and and it is those perceptions that that keep internal hires from getting promoted. Don't you think? They do. They do. I, and I think it's um that plus again something you, you said earlier, right? About kind of the external hero, you know, the shiny object that people see they don't really know much about that person, but, but, you know, the, the internal person is well-known, right. Or they think they know this person. At least they may only know them in the context of a particular role. They may not have a particularly good view of their capability, but you know, it's a tarnished coin. It's not the shiny, the shiny object, right. That you have. And, and I see boards make this mistake, right. Of not elevating actually very talented yeah. people inside. And then those people leave, right. Because of course they why do. would they not? Why would right. they not? Right. right, right. Rather than saying, look, we believe in you. We're going to invest in you. We think you have the goods. We think we're wearing the ruby slippers. They may need a little polish. We're going to get you a coach that's going to work with you on those things that you need to, in areas you need to develop. And we're going to, you know. Um, so I want to ask you about that because you're, you're, you're yeah. sort of pointing at something really interesting, which is to what extent do boards of nonprofits see the development of internal leadership as a priority and, and should they be doing of course more they, uh, uh, of course they should they should be asking questions of the executive director about succession not just succession planning but also sort of who are your superstars and what are you doing to retain them right so eds often will say thanks for asking this question by the way michael um eds will often say the board you know you just are responsible for hiring and firing me leave me alone to manage staff but it's not that simple right there is an obligation that the board has in providing oversight to say okay so how are you doing i don't just want your retention numbers or your attrition percentage i want to know about how are you developing the person who could take your job one day, right? Um, you know, at, at boards tend to focus on the, you know, sort of the bad apple, 
as opposed to who are we looking at and who, who's got a future potential in this organization and how are you creating professional development opportunities for them so that they are interested in staying so that you retain them and that you have an, we have an opportunity to build a pipeline. Really happy to hear you say all that because I think it, it makes complete sense, right? And I, you know, in the for-profit world, the best boards I see worry a lot about talent and the future. Yep. They want they want to know about the talent in the organization. They want to be sure that the organization is doing what you just said, which is focusing attention on assessing and developing those people, having a succession plan. But even more than that, and I think you said it, John, right? having a, a deeper sense of how are we going to continue to engage and develop people in this organization, because that's a core pillar of how that organization is going to continue to thrive. So the, the interesting piece of that, Michael, is that um, whether they do it well or right, the for-profit sector does value or seemingly value professional development in a way that the nonprofit sector um, doesn't because if I add money to my budget for professional development, that increases my overhead and funders don't like high overhead. Um, if I have, uh, if let's say I'm a $3 million organization and I have retained a search firm to find my new CEO and I've spent quite a lot of money, I think that that money has bought me a rock star who doesn't need a coach. Um, and so money is such a powerful driver in the sector in a way that's so problematic that people don't get the support that they need. Um, you know, I mean, I, we were talking before we started recording. And it's one of the reasons, you know, I have a membership site for executive directors of small nonprofits, you know, and it's, you know, under 50 bucks a month. And it's, you know, it's like, it's like Netflix nonprofit leader. They're just, they need it because they're just not getting it. So I, so I think that, that there, there's a, there's a bias in hiring new CEOs in the nonprofit sector that says I hired a rock star. I even spent a lot of time and energy on this. Maybe I even spent money. Why would they need a coach? And then this notion that people professional development, the risk associated with increasing your overhead is, um, is a, a, f a false concept totally, and uh, but real. Yeah, I mean, maybe part of the answer, and you'd know more than I would about this by far, Joan, is to sort of have a set of best practices for talent development for nonprofits that yep. boards need to pay attention to. And so, sometimes I find with boards, and it's true in the for-profit, is if they if they don't have a framework, they get very nervous, right? They don't know <laughs> what good and bad looks like. Yep. You know, you say, I want to spend X dollars on a coaching, you know, engagement is that a good idea bad idea and so you know it's kind of what what do nonprofit boards need to know about talent management and uh, and, and be able to benchmark themselves a little bit against it and um, and what that will require in the sector is for the executive director are you listening to be receptive to having conversations with your board about your people um, assuming you're lucky enough to have some people um, <laughs> so um, uh, what gets in the way let's talk about that for a minute um, and I, I will, I'll start and say that um, I'm not a huge fan of uh, a new executive director coming in and saying, I'm going to be on a listening tour. I, mm -hmm. I actually, I, I, I don't like listening tours because so I, I don't like listening tours because it's passive. 
Mm-hmm. It's not a conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just, listen, I, I don't know. I, I, maybe you disagree with me on this, but I just feel like it, no, doesn't, I don't actually. it doesn't sound like I'm learning. It sounds like I'm just hearing. Yeah. I, and I think actually it's, it's as much a, a problem of branding as it is a problem of reality. Right. I mean, I think I would never call something a listening tour for the exactly the reasons you're describing. Right. But if you're talking about kind of a, a learning journey, right. A, a, a leader who's engaging and seeking that first to understand. So it's as much, I think the framing, but then of course it's also the practice, right? I mean, you know, how do you, how do you really listen actively? Because in listening actively, and you made this point earlier, Joan, you're actually also influencing at the very same time. Right. And so, so I certainly wouldn't call it something like that. Right. I'd have a better way of describing and framing what I'm doing. Right. I'm really here to understand the organization connect with people, really take stock of what's, you know, you, you, you need, again, this goes back to the messaging that you want to put together before you, you even arrive. Agreed. Um, agreed. For sure. um, so that, to me, um, that's something that I think of if you, if you brand it as a listening tour, I think that that feels, that feels like it can thwart your break even. Um, so talk about, talk about a couple of other things, uh, highlight a couple of other things that can thwart the break even. So there's a few, right? And, and I, there's a couple of different categories, right? What, one is, and you, you, again, you sort of nailed it earlier, right? This notion that we've hired the superstar, you know, you're, you're a leader, so go lead. Um, you know, it's, it's the sink or swim approach. So the board kind of isn't, isn't supporting the transition to the degree they need to, right? I sometimes call it, you know, leadership development through Darwinian evolution. You know, you're going <laughs> to, you're going to succeed, you're going to fail, but you're not going to get a lot of support in the process. And so understanding that hiring that new ED, to use your term, is just the beginning of a process of helping them have a successful transition into the organization. Right. And it's not going to be just three months. It may be six. It may be the first year you need to be really engaging with that leader pretty intensively. Now, obviously, you know, the board and, and if they're the board chairman and if there's an executive committee really need to step up to do that, right? It's typically not work I see the broader board typically do, but there needs to be some kind of coalition within the board, formal or informal, that, that sort of is there to help, you know? And then, of course, the leader has to be willing to take that, right? The flip side of what you said. There's other sort of classic traps that leaders fall into, right? One is, you know, and you kind of, again, resonate with things you've said, um, you know, sticking with what you know, right? Not understanding that what you need to do to be successful here is going to require you to let go of some things that perhaps you love doing or very good at and embrace some things that perhaps you're not so wonderful at or don't enjoy doing. And so seeing the transition in part as a, leadership development journey that you need to go on. I love that. I mean, it's going to, you're going to, it's going to sound strange, but you know, I'm coaching, you know, new CEOs and you think it would be hundred percent on their transitions, but very early on, I'm asking them, you know, you're going to have a successful transition. What's it going to take for you to become great in this role? Yep. Right. What's the, what are the, what's the work that you need to do on your leadership to become great and being clear on that, on your own sort of leadership development agenda relatively early, not right off the get-go, obviously, right, is a really crucial part of this. And it, and it very much is connected. You know, I'm sure you've heard the, 
the Marshall Goldsmith quote or book title, right? What got you here won't get you there. Uh Well, so figuring out what it's going to take to get you there is really crucial. Coming in with the answer, right? I, I, I know what this organization needs, right? It's very clear. And I don't need to do a whole lot of, you know, uh, additional checking because, you know, I've learned everything I need to do through the search process and the board. I'm now razor sharp focused on what I need to do. And I, you know, what I say about this is even if you really do have the answer, people don't want to hear that. Right? Right. They don't want to hear that you've got the solution to problems they've struggled with. You know, they want you to engage. They want you to at least acknowledge that the organization has unique characteristics, right? They want or you, in the you case, need to be social. Yeah, or, or in the case of an, 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 where a non- nonprofit sometimes differs from the for-profit sector, they expect to have a voice in that answer, right? Yeah. Is This is, I think, the big mistake now I came from for profit to not to the nonprofit sector, and um, you know I had a steep learning curve, but I under, I understood I think pretty early on that people come to work at nonprofits to have a voice. That's the that's the that's the equivalent of the year end bonus, and that doesn't mean they get a vote, but it means they need a voice. And you talk about thwarting success by neglecting, you say neglecting horizontal relationships. And I would say in the nonprofit sector, it's sort of neglecting the powerful voices around you by not engaging them and having, ensuring that their voices are heard. I mean, this is why you have board attrition, because leaders don't ask board members for their points of view, things like that. But this, you know, the, the, all these things tied together, but I do think... Makes complete sense. Yeah, right. I mean, I think it is this notion, I think that is a uniqueness about the nonprofit sector is um, is this notion about staff expecting to be heard and something that I, I, think, I think that people who come from the for-profit sector have lots to add to the nonprofit sector. Um, but I actually think the nonprofit sector um, can, can return the favor and equal measure. Um, we are talking with... There, there yeah, are, um, so, no, I was going to say there are for-profit companies that actually have similar cultures, right? And so yes. I, I do a lot of work with Johnson & Johnson. They've been a client of mine for more than 20 years. And they're very much a relationship organization as large as they are, right? And so, you know, you really need to be focused on connecting with all the key stakeholders and at least informing them about what's going on and giving them a chance to have some input, right? I, Whereas there's other organizations where it's just, that's just, it's just really I, much I, more authority I, driven. I appreciate the the friendly amendment there. And I put kind of, that was a gross generalization for 400, Alex, but you're absolutely right. Um, so we're talking with Michael Watkins, who's the co-founder of Genesis Advisors, a global leadership development consulting firm based in Boston. Um, and his CV goes on for um, quite a long time. But what you should definitely know about him is that he is the author of the first 90 Days, which is the go-to book for leaders in uh, transitioned to new gigs. Um, He's the expert. And um, if you want to learn more about um, Michael's work, you can visit genesisadvisors.com. Michael, I, you know, we're not going to have time to go into every bit of the number of steps that you outline in your book. Uh, and if we did, then no one would need to buy it. So we, we don't mm-hmm. want that either. So 
I'm going to list the steps and then I'm, I'm thinking maybe we can highlight sure. one or two or so. And we've talked a bit about some of them, right? So your steps are prepare yourself, accelerate your learning, match your strategy to the situation, early wins, negotiate success, achieve alignment, build your team, create coalitions, keep your balance and accelerate everyone. Now, if I'm if I'm on the treadmill and I'm about to become a new CEO of a nonprofit, I'm thinking, you want me to do all that in 90 days? The heck, what's going on here, Michael? Um, Absolutely. But, but I but I yes, also sir. think actually what's really interesting based on the you know the conversation we've had for the last half hour is so much of it is interconnected, isn't it? It, it really is. And I think for your audience, I, I'd stress a few of these, maybe, Joan, just a little bit on, on some. So, I mean, we Please. talked a lot about the Accelerate Your Learning piece, and it's just so crucial, right? And so, you know, and it's all of what we talked about, about how do you think about what you need to learn, how do you go about learning, and so on. But that prepare yourself one is is important, and important in part because of the pre-boarding we talked about, but in part also because you really need to understand the kinds of transitions you're going through. Right, and it's often, usually, in fact, more than one. You may have been promoted. You're leading former peers. You're operating a different part of the organization, or you're onboarding into a new organization. But you're also with your family, and so that prepare yourself. One in part is to is about helping you as a new leader really disentangle the complexity of the transition and know what to focus on. So that's one I would I would point to. The master strategy situation. This is one that's really about understanding the core of the challenge you face with the organization. And so I put together this little model called the STARS model for startup turnaround, accelerated growth, realignment, and sustaining success. That's a very simple categorization, but it helps you think about, okay, how am I going to orient myself to what needs to be done here, right? There's a big difference if you're launching something versus there's a crisis happening versus you've had success and now you want to be scaling it. And I think these things probably translate with some adaptation, right, to the non the nonprofit sector. Mm-hmm. And again, something I think you, you you said earlier too, which is making sure you have alignment with your board about what you're fundamentally there to do, right? Mm-hmm. If they think you're there to turn it around, and you think it's really more of a realignment once you get in there, you better you better close that gap of understanding, right? Mm-hmm. Or vice versa, right? They think they think it's kind of steady as it goes with maybe a few adjustments and you get in and you find it's a disaster in progress. And so that's the usefulness <laughs> of that, that framework. Um, and then I think the create coalitions, right? The build alliances, this is really what you were alluding to just a few minutes ago, Joan, right? About that need to think about what's, what are the alliances I need to build to govern this institution effectively? Whose voice needs to be heard? Right. What's sufficient consensus in the organization? Because you're never going to make everybody happy, and so on. So those would be a couple I think I'd I'd highlight. I'm in, I'm intrigued by one of them um, though. Uh, talk about what what do you mean by keep your balance? Uh, so this is really about how do you manage yourself through the process, because inevitably it's a very demanding time in your life, inevitably there are going to be emotional ups and downs. You really need to be focused on getting good advice through that time. Uh, You really need to be focused on managing your energy through that time. You often need to focus if you've got a family on 
you know, helping your family be okay while you're off doing this very intensely. You have to be thinking about when are you going to go back to doing some of the, crit- the critical self-care work that you would normally do? Mm-hmm. Because almost inevitably in transition, you don't, right? You stop exercising, you're not sort of eating the way you should, right? I always advise the people I work with, you know, say, Let, let's set a date, you know, at which you'll begin to re-engage I love with that. some of the core, you know, self-care work that you do. You know, what's interesting about that is, uh, you know, I bet there are people listening who are saying, okay, so at Johnson & Johnson, a new CEOs probably got a chief of staff, an executive assistant, like a, there's an office of the president at Johnson & Johnson. And um, they don't take care of themselves. Like I get that I don't take care of myself. Like I've got, you know, I've got a development, I've got a development manager who takes care of my database and I got a couple of interns and a, and a group of volunteers. Like, I understand why I don't take care of myself. Like, I, I'm guessing that there are people out there that are thinking, wow, even people who have like offices of the president don't take good care of themselves. How do you like that? But it's true, John. They don't, right? Because, I mean, if you think about the CEO of J&J, that's 130,000 people. Right. That's, a, that's a three sectors of businesses in, a, in an environment that's been knocked on its you know, we'll behind by what's the yeah, exactly. Thank you, John. For, you're welcome. For doing that. You're, you're less shy than I am. Uh, you know, so, so I think, you know, I, I wouldn't say that they're equivalent, right? Because obviously being the CEO of J&J comes with a lot of support and resource. But these people work incredibly hard. Right. And during transitions, they're, they're maxing themselves out for sure. So let's talk about um, uh, as a sort of a, maybe a final category here. Um. This all sounds so structured and planful and um, as a book and it has chapters and everything, right? And you arrive and um, so I'll just use it as an example. Actually, my client who I think used both my book and your book um, does all this prep work, accelerates her learning, right? She arrives and this is an organ, you know, and she arrives and on Monday morning, she's out front of the building. It's a huge, uh, uh, health, uh, you know, federally qualified healthcare um, organization. Um, and she's out front, she's greeting people, she's shaking hands, she's, wel- you know, sort of welcoming people to the office. And that by the, by the next day, um, basically, actually Boston, right, has been shut down. So last time she's out shaking, she hasn't shaken anybody's hand since, I don't think. And does all the planning go out the window? What does the break-even point accelerate or does it decrease? Like what happens? And, you know, and we can use any number of crises as an example. It just seems like a global pandemic is as good as any other. <laughs> no, for sure, right? And I think, so a couple of reactions, right? So I, uh, there's a quote by... Dwight D. Eisenhower, right, Supreme Commander of U.S. Forces during the Second World War, President Eisenhower, and he said, plans are are worthless, but planning is everything. Right. Right. So the act of going through the planning, putting in place a structure, then gives you, it's kind of like jazz, it gives you a framework within which to improvise when you meet the inevitable crisis, the inevitable contingency, right? And I always describe the first 90 days as kind of distilled common sense, right? And its biggest value is that it does provide you with a framework, right? It provides you with a structure and some tools. Is it going to give you every answer? Absolutely not. 
are you going to face the unforeseen? Almost certainly, yeah. right? But hopefully it gives you momentum and direction and, and some resources that will help you deal with those, those crises. Also, you know, we, we can talk a long time about transition more generally, right? I, I focus mostly on a specific type of transition, which is leaders taking new roles. But transitions have their dynamics more broadly, right? The transition of dealing psychologically with what we've gone through in the last six months, right? And the inevitable transition and emotional curve that we've gone through. So understanding something about transitions, I think, actually helps even beyond just the, the more narrow confines of taking a new job. And and this is where we go back to where we sort of where we started. And we're just about out of time. Is this notion of who are you looking for, right? And if you and you know, and I, I used the word hiring a messiah or the messiah proof of concept in two ways. One is the way you you heard it, I think, which is the sort of the the narcissistic big personality external voice and face. I also I also meant it as like. I need a person who can do everything really, 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 really well. And um, I think that it is those attributes of leadership that allows somebody to come in when it hits the fan and be able to navigate that in a way that is relational, that is thoughtful, that is nimble, right? Um all of the things, all of the things that thwart somebody's success in transition, um, t- tend to go back to certain kinds of attributes of leadership. It seems to me, and um, I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, and we don't want to get political, but we usually could, right? In a moment like this, um, you know, I think leadership that is able to connect and empathize and support and hold people at a crucial time is really necessary when you're facing major crises, right? And I think that, you know, some leaders have it and some really do not, (laughs) you know, and I think it's, the crisis is often the test, right? Of whether you've got great leaders. I mean, just, I know we're running out of time, but a specific example, right? So I teach at a business school called IMD Institute for Management Development in um, Lausanne, Switzerland. And you can imagine what, the pandemic did to our business, right? Which right. is bringing people together from all over the world and mixing them up in a stew in which they learn, right? And you're seeing, you know, huge drops in the business. And we're fortunate enough to have a leader who exemplifies just what you're talking about, right? And this is a nonprofit actually organization. You know, he has been able to not merely direct energy in appropriate ways and mobilize people in the ways you'd want them to. He's been able to hold the, the organization and provide almost like a secure base for that organization. And it's the rare leader in my experience that can do both those things, but it's just so valuable. When Agreed. They can. Agreed. Um, so M- M- Michael Watkins has been my guest today. And um, in, I, I want to just say thank you um, for your wisdom and your insights and for guiding so many people both in, in your in your direct consulting practice and through the so many people that have um, used your book as a bit of a Bible. So I really I just wanted to say thank you for all of your good work and for joining me today. Well, delighted to have been able to engage with you, John. The, um, the last thing I just want to say to people that are listening is you have been listening to a conversation from two people that are hell-bent on the success of leaders.
full stop. And we're just two people. There are so many individuals, organizations, resources you can tap into, right? I mean, Michael made a really important point. It's not just the transition to a new CEO gig. You right now, whether you're on an elliptical machine or whether you are in a car, wherever it is you are, right? You deserve professional development support because you are in a very challenging time. You are navigating um, your organization through very turbulent waters um, where that where you don't even know what's around the next turn. Um, so one of the reasons I made Michael Watkins amplify the keep your balance is that you have got to take good care of yourself. And so today you heard from two coaches who are two of many who are out there in the universe um, in ways and shapes and forms that you should absolutely take time to invest, investigate, and grab onto. You deserve it. Um, your organizations deserve it. Your clients need you to be at your best. Um, I hope this has been a very hel- I hope this has been helpful. And I I know I feel like I've learned a lot and I hope you have too. So with that, I'm going to let you go. And I'm just going to say, please stay safe. And today I'll just say, keep your balance. Thanks so much for listening. And I hope you found the conversation to be valuable. If you enjoyed the podcast, remember to subscribe to it. And if you're feeling especially generous, leave us a review. Turns out that reviews really matter. They help people discover the podcast. And if there's anything in this episode or any episode that really struck you as an aha moment, we'd love to know. Shoot us an email at podcast at joangary.com. And if you'd like to learn more about nonprofit leadership, head on over to my website at joangary.com. That's J-O-A-N-G-A-R-R-Y.com. It's full of advice and resources that you can put into action right away. And make sure to enter your email address so I can send you a surprise I think you'll find helpful. And if I haven't said it lately, thank you. Thank you so much for the important work you do every day to make this world a better place. I'll see you next time.